The successful treatment of benign esophageal strictures requires both skill and patience. How can we improve the treatment of these strictures? Welcome to GI Insights on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Buck. Joining us today is Dr. Todd H. Barron, Professor of Medicine and Director of Advanced Therapeutic Endoscopy at the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Dr. Barron is also the author of Top Tips for Dilation of Benign Esophageal Strictures, published in Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, March 2022. Welcome to the program, Dr. Barron. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right in, Dr. Barron. What are the top mistakes made by gastroenterologists when dilating esophageal strictures? Well, I think the probably the biggest mistake is poor estimation of stricture diameter. And honestly, we're probably not the greatest in terms of visually providing measurements, but I think the diameter of the stricture that you're aiming to dilate is obviously very important because then you're going to choose your dilation tools and diameters more importantly for the diameter of the strictures. Thank you. So now in your article, you recommended the endoscopist to consider eosinophilic esophagitis when evaluating patients with suspected benign strictures. Can you please elaborate on this recommendation? Yes. Well, the main reason to suspect it is that in general, you're going to have to be a little more gentle in your dilation, but also it's a disease process that needs medical therapy, not just endoscopic therapy. So the recognition is very important because you need to identify it so that you can correctly treat it with what now is topical corticosteroids or elimination diets and things like that. Dilation does play a role in patients with eosinophilic esophagitis and dysphagia, but generally not the standalone. So it needs to be recognized by the endoscopic findings, appropriate biopsies taken, to establish the diagnosis. And then again, these patients, the the main concern with dilation is they often have narrowed esophagi from top to bottom. So again, while you may not perceive that the esophagus is that narrow, if you choose a fairly larger diameter dilator for those patients who have generally small esophagus, then there's a potentially higher risk of perforation. The other is that you tend to be more of a diffuse dilation, meaning you're going to try to dilate the entire esophagus most of the time in those patients, if that's your approach, rather than just one area, although they can also have focal strictures. Thank you. How do you decide whether to use a balloon or a wire-guided bougie? Right. Excellent question. So we don't have randomized trials to guide us as to one or the other. A lot of it is, I think, personal preference, prior training, who taught you has a great deal to do with it. Personally, I prefer the rigid dilators in patients with more refractory strictures. And the reason for that is that the bougie or rigid dilators provide not only a shearing force, but a radial force. So there's two mechanisms of action for dilation as opposed to balloon dilation, which is radial force alone. The other is that if patients have very, very fibrotic strictures and you dilate to a balloon, you're assuming 
that when you go to the PSI that's called for by the manufacturer, that it actually reaches that diameter. And it may or may not, depending on how fibrotic the stricture is, and you wouldn't know that unless you dilated under fluoroscopy and you looked for a waste in the balloon. And most people just don't always use fluoroscopies. Very useful information. Thank you. Dr. Barron, would you perform an esophageal dilation in the same session as removing a significant food bolus? Also, great question. You don't want the patient to leave necessarily with a severe stricture. So if let's say you're able to carefully remove it, you don't see any major trauma related to the endoscopy, the patient has tolerated the procedure well, I think it's reasonable. And they're left with, again, this is not just EOE, because when you EOE, when you clear it, you probably don't have a significant strictures. But if you're done and, the, and there's still a significant stricture, I think it's reasonable to do at least a mild dilation to kind of get the patient going, get them better quicker rather than have to bring them back and save them serve another trip for a dilation. Thank you. For those just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights and ReachMD. I'm Dr. Peter Buck, and I'm speaking with Dr. Todd Barron about benign esophageal strictures. Dr. Barron, let's turn our attention to refractory strictures. How does your approach to treating these differ from typical esophageal strictures? So in patients with refractory strictures, the main thing is you, I think you have to be more aggressive with the dilation and not necessarily, I mean, the diameter chosen on a given time, but more bringing the patient back earlier for redilation. And so typically the patients that refer to me have been dilated numerous times and they haven't made significant progress. And it may be that if they were getting dilated once a month, once every six weeks, in which case I will dilate them appropriately and bring them back early, sometimes as early as a week later or two weeks later to try to see if more aggressive, more frequent dilation can make an impact. Again, the patients that you tend to be woefully disappointed with in that regard are the head and neck, really bad radiation-induced strictures, but I think it's still worth trying to be aggressive and dilate those patients. The other thing is I might try something that the other physician or somebody hasn't tried or even myself. So if I had done balloon dilation and it's not making progress, I might then go to rigid dilators in those cases. And then of course, there are things that we do such as electroincision for refractory strictures. And electroincision is, is the use of electrocautery, typically with what's called a needle knife, which is used for ERCP. That tends to be best suited for patients with anastomotic strictures. So the typical patient there will be somebody who's had what's called an Ivor Lewis operation or commonly a distal esophagectomy with an esophagogastric anastomosis. And those strictures tend to be short. They may look to be readily dilatable, and I still would do that as the first approach. But then surprisingly, sometimes they come back and they've not really responded or they've recurred relatively quickly 
or again, after numerous dilations, those tend to respond very, very well to electroincision. The other, of course, is use of injectable corticosteroids, such as triamcinolone, which we all do for recurrent or refractory strictures, although the best data to support the use of corticosteroids are derived from the peptic strictures, which are less common and less the presenting of refractory strictures. You have to remember, it may or may not be helping. It may be helping the doctor more than the patient, but it's certainly something to try as well and concomitant with dilation. Great. With those interesting thoughts in mind, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Todd H. Barron, for sharing his insights on treating esophageal strictures. Dr. Barron, it was a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This was great. For ReachMD, I'm Dr. Peter Buck. To access this and other episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash GI Insights, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.